Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Amen, 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 amen. Church, how we doing? Lord, we give you the praise. We give you the honor. You are worthy of every single bit of it. God, I pray that you would give us the strength to enter into this moment, this this space of your word and your presence. God, I pray that you would comfort every heart that is in this place and troubled. God, I pray that you would remind us that you are not far, but you are near. Because your word reminds us, your promise for us is, God, that you are near the brokenhearted and that you rescue those that are crushed. So God, remind us of the truth. When our hearts try to convince us that you are far in our darkness, remind us of your promise that that's when you are closest to us. Remind our hearts, God, that though you may not give us answer to our questions, that you give us your presence and that is far greater. God, comfort our hearts, comfort our spirits today. God, as we open up your text, remind us that these are not simply words on pages, pages in a book, but rather, God, this is an opportunity to see your face. This is an opportunity to see your face. God, that we may not gloss over your word, that we may not take this moment for granted, that we may not take these moments to raise our voices and raise our hands and worship for granted. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, without you, this is just a club. We're just gathering. We're just chilling. But God, with your Holy Spirit, you make this meaningful. With your Holy Spirit, you make this true. With your Holy Spirit, you shake and you move. With your Holy Spirit, you give us a taste of your goodness. With your Holy Spirit, you give us a taste of your presence. With your Holy Spirit, we have your power. With your Holy Spirit, we have victory. So God, today, may we taste your goodness. May we taste your victory. And may we get a sense of the freedom that you offer. God, the freedom that you gave your life for. The freedom that you said you would come to give us and bring us. God, today, may we have the courage, the faith to step into that today. God, thank you for Epiphany. Thank you for their witness. Thank you for their leaders. God, may your word today be sharp. And God, may you give me the grace and the courage to hold this two-edged sword, not by the the handle, but by the blade, that it would cut me first before it cuts anyone else. God, I want this to be true. God, that people would see your face and not mine, that they would hear your voice and not mine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, what's up? Y'all doing good? Well, listen, before we jump into the text, I just want to give a hearty thank you uh, to you guys for letting me just be here. I, I say this often whenever I preach outside of our church. Uh, it is an honor, a privilege, and a weight uh, not simply to visit you guys here and be with y'all in fellowship, but really to carry God's word and be able to stand on behalf of your pastors and your leaders and share that word with you. I'm really grateful for your pastors. Uh, For a long time, I've admired you guys and your leaders uh, from a distance back in New York and uh, Pastor E and and all the rest of the pastors and your history here in Philly has been a huge encouragement for us back home 
as we love our city the way that you guys love yours. So thank you all to y'all. Shots to you guys, the way that you guys have been planted here uh, and loving your city. So thank you all. I'm going to jump right into it because my time's already ticking. Psalm 130, if you have your text, why don't you go ahead and go to Psalm 130. And we are going to talk about it because today... I want to know how God and his gospel, the good news of Jesus, gives us the courage to do something that perhaps all of us are terrified to do. Psalm 130, if you're able, stand with me as we read this word together. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand, Lord? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. That's a bar too nice. He had to say that twice. Israel, put your hope in the Lord for there is faithful love with him. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. You guys may be seated. I want to look at Psalm 130 and figure out how through this song, we're able to find the courage to do one of the things that perhaps every single one of us in this room is terrified of doing. You know, if I had to give us the sermon in a sentence, here it is. If there's anything I want you to walk away with today, it's this. That through this psalm, Jesus shows us that the reward of facing our guilt is freedom. Jesus shows us that the reward of doing this very terrifying thing of facing our guilt is freedom. A few things I think Psalm 130 invites us to, and I want to share them with you guys. The first one is this. This song invites us to face our guilt. Not a lot of amens on that one. Listen, facing our guilt is difficult. But perhaps in this song we may find some source of encouragement and strength and faith to actually do the terrifying. A few things I want to give context to because with every psalm, there's a context. There's an occasion. Somebody penned that song for a reason. Somebody was in their feelings and they shared what they were feeling. And they called out to God in the midst of that. And as I read through the occasions and the history and the context of Psalm 130 and I read what different people were saying, one of the things that was very obvious is that nobody knows exactly what was happening. Right? But that doesn't mean that we can't get a sense Of what is happening, because you see, we know that David, the king, wrote this psalm in a really tumultuous time of his life. And David, as we all know, has no shortage of moments in in his life that probably stirred up some guilt. Amen? Take for example, can I be real? All right, listen, y'all gave me permission. (laughs) Right? Consider this moment in David's life. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, when Tamar, his daughter was raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Y'all remember that? Tamar was raped by her half-brother, Amnon. And David, if you read chapter 11, chapter 12, 
13 and 14, you realize that David was practically absent. That David said nothing. David did nothing. In fact, the text tells us that David was the one that arranged for his daughter, Tamar, to go bring food to her half-brother, Amnon, because he was supposedly sick. David arranged for that. The mighty King David arranged for that. The text does say at one point that when his other son, Absalom, brought this to him, the text says that David grew furious. But that's all that boy did. He was just angry. He ain't do nothing. You ever meet people that are just angry about something, some kind of injustice, and they, they're telling you how angry they are, but they don't do nothing. This was King David, by the way. Forgot, I don't know if you forgot we were talking about King David. But this was King David. He said nothing. He did nothing. Or maybe in the very next chapter, probably not surprising. Can I get real? Probably not surprising in the next chapter, David becomes the rapist. Eek. Did I say that out loud? My bad. In the very next chapter, David then becomes the, chopper, uh, the, the rapist. Not surprisingly. You see, David uses his power and his influence to sleep with another man's wife. Not to mention the fact that he got that, that man killed in war. This is David, King David. I don't know, I don't know if I forgot this. Okay. Or perhaps consider the very next chapter. This is all in the same context. Consider the very next chapter when his son, Absalom, who had plotted to kill his brother Amnon, who raped his sister, David did nothing. You see, David was very aware of the rage, of the vengeance, of the hatred that was brewing inside of Absalom. And he may have cautioned them here. And he may have cautioned them there. But he did nothing to confront his son. He allowed hatred, he allowed vengeance to foster in Absalom's heart. And then later we realized that Absalom, who tried to kill David, was then killed in battle. And this is what David says. He says, after hearing the news of David, uh, uh, of his death, David cries, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Absalom, my son, my son. Now, church, let me be real for a second. I'm sure there's some grief happening here for Dave. If I could call him Dave. I'm sure there's some grief happening for David. But, church, please don't get it confused. David was grappling with a lot of guilt at this moment. David was grappling with a lot of guilt. Perhaps the guilt of not saying anything, not doing anything when his daughter was raped. Perhaps the guilt of taking another man's wife after having that man killed. Perhaps the guilt of not confronting his son that ultimately led to the death of that son. You see, David is grieving, no doubt about it. But please, let's not forget the fact that David was probably grappling with some guilt. You see, what David does in this psalm is what we are all terrified of doing, facing our guilt facing our guilt now church the reason why I think perhaps so many of us today are troubled or have challenges facing our guilt is because perhaps uh, in our culture by and large we are told that we should be more forgiving of ourselves 
Because by and large, culture tells us to be more kind to ourselves, to be more patient with, our, with ourselves. Now, church, let me, let me be honest here for a moment because I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying here. I do believe that there are some of us in this place right now that could be a little more patient with ourselves. I deeply believe that some of, our, some of us in this room perhaps don't treat ourselves kindly. That some of us are not patient with ourselves, let alone gracious with ourselves. That some of us in this place love ourselves very poorly, in fact, which is why we don't know how to do love with others. I'm very aware, and I deeply believe that some of us could be kinder with ourselves, could be more patient with ourselves, could learn how to love ourselves. But church, I've got to be honest we cannot say that we must love ourselves, uh, love ourselves more, be more patient with ourselves, be forgiving to ourselves at the expense of facing the things inside of us that are actually causing us some harm. Church, I've got to be honest that we cannot disregard or deny the guilt that sometimes we experience simply because we want to be kinder to ourselves. You know, one of the things that we'll realize is that self-forgiveness sometimes is an illusion. Self-forgiveness, church, can be an illusion. Now, this may not have been part of God's intention at the very beginning, but could I be honest, church, guilt is part of the human experience. Guilt is part of the human experience. I could be so bold to say, in fact, that I believe that guilt is a gift to us from God. felt like some of y'all were going to throw something at me for that. <laughs> guilt is a gift to us from God. You see, church, what I love so deeply about Psalm 130 are the words that David uses to describe the condition that he's in. Check what he says right here in verse 1, right from the jump. He says, out of the depths, we just sang about this, out of the depths I call to you, Lord Now, the word depth, family, in Hebrew is the word for abundance. Isn't that strange? The word depth in the Hebrew is the same word for abundance in English. It's the same word that we hear a young lady named Hannah in a previous story, if you remember Hannah. And how she describes why she's compelled to pray. She uses the word. She says, I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Or let me just substitute the word for you. I've been praying from the abundance of my anguish and resentment. Now church, this is a really interesting choice of words for David. Because in my mind, the last thing that I believe David was feeling was abundance. You see, when we think of depth, we think of some kind of valley or some kind of empty hole that we find ourselves stuck in. But this is not what's happening in this text. You see, what we realize is that David is not in an empty valley with nothing in it. Rather, that David is somewhere where there is something in abundance. And verse 3 confirms to us what that thing is. You see, verse 3 confirms that what he is abundant in is guilt. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? 
You see, what David has an overabundance of is guilt. Lord, if you kept an account of my iniquities, of our iniquities, who could stand? Church, what is it about guilt that makes it so difficult for us to face it? What is it about our darkness and our shadows that makes it so difficult for us to actually confront them? What is it about guilt that makes it so difficult for us to stand close in proximity to them and take a hard look at them? Church, can I be honest and vulnerable for a moment? Would that help? I'll never forget the face of my wife, Anna, when in our second year of marriage, I confessed to her that I had been indulging in pornography. And I sat there. As I cried through my apology, she looked at me with a tender face. I'll never forget the face she had when I confessed that to her. She sat there patiently as I cried my way through an apology. She sat there and she looked at me with the gentle face that she always has as I described to her how I had just broken trust of the culture of commitment that I had fostered for the last two years. The vows that I had committed to keeping. As I described to her the ways that I had just broken that, she sat there with her gentle and tender face. And you know what's so crazy about that? I couldn't skirt her face. I couldn't go around her demeanor. I couldn't go around the environment that was happening as I laid my heart before her. She was so thoughtful with her words. She's Puerto Rican, so she was also honest. She was very thoughtful with her words. She was very honest with her words, but she was very kind with her response. But church, could I be honest? Anna was hurt. Anna was hurt by my words. Anna was hurt by the news I was bringing to her. And there was no amount of two-stepping or shimming that I could do to not see the way that I could hurt somebody. There was no way that I could two-step around the fact that my words and my actions could actually cause harm to people that I had vowed to love. Church, there's something about standing close in proximity to a mirror that makes it hard for us to confess and face our darkness. But church, could I tell you that that's not what I was most terrified of? It wasn't simply the words that I was sharing. You see, what was most terrifying for me was what that behavior revealed about my condition. What was most terrifying was to realize what kind of person I was. The condition that my heart was in. I was lonely and angry and I was capable of doing harm. Church, I was unsettled by how my hurt and how my loneliness and how my anger could actually harm others, especially those that are closest to me. And what I love about this psalm is that David is not just speaking for himself. You see, without even knowing it, David is showing us the condition of our own hearts. That as David confesses that out of the depths he called out to God, what he is doing, perhaps unknowingly, is connecting his self to the guilt that we often experience. 
You see, David is showing us the condition of his heart. He's showing us the ways that we can harm our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Church, David is crying out from the depths, from the abundance. And it isn't just a call for us to face our guilt. It's a call for us to engage our guilt. You see, there's a difference between just looking at your shadows, looking at your darkness, looking at the condition of your heart, and doing something about it, taking it to the physician. You see, there's a difference between acknowledging what's happening inside of you and you actually taking it to the one who can do something about it. You see, family, I deeply believe that God has hardwired our feelings not so that we would ignore them. Church, let's be honest. Church culture is, is, is notorious for overlooking the feelings that we have. Church culture is notorious for disregarding the feelings that we experience. But I believe deeply, and I think the psalm supports this, that God is calling us to see, to face, to engage the feelings that we have, guilt in particular, so that they would lead us to where God is taking us. God is leveraging guilt in order to bring us into his presence. You see, when we feel the feels, when we feel guilt, shame, loneliness, hurt, pain, sadness, joy, God is telling us something about the condition of our hearts. He's saying something about what our hearts desire. You see, to look closely at our feelings and to look closely at the guilt as David does here is for him to learn something about the way that he's wired. He is wired for forgiveness and wholeness. You see, when we look at our guilt and when we face them with courage, knowing that God's going to flex his muscle on the other side of that facing, on the other side of that confrontation, then it leads us to the place where we get what our hearts are longing for. Forgiveness and wholeness. We don't have to live fractured anymore. God desires to use our guilt to bring us to himself. Church, guilt is a gift. Guilt is a gift because it shows us our hearts and it empowers us to give it what it cries out for. Do you know your heart is hungry? Do you know that your heart has desires? And do you know that your feelings are meant to be keys and flashlights and pass codes into who you are so that that would in turn lead you to who you, you were meant to be so that that would in turn lead you to the one who can actually give your heart what it desires? Forgiveness and wholeness is precisely what God desires to give us. But there's no way to talk about facing our guilt without acknowledging the obstacles that come ahead of them. Which leads me to my second thought. This psalm not only gives us, uh, 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 not only invites us to face our guilt, but it gives us the courage, hear me, it gives us the courage to receive love. And please notice I said receive and not give. It gives us the courage to receive love. Church, David showed incredible humility and trust when he says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? 
You know that he shows an incredible amount of trust and humility when he acknowledges that God is the one with the power to hold our guilt over us. You know that he acknowledges in humility that God is the only one that can do anything about it. But there's, there's a picture. There's a, there's a really funny word in the text, iniquities. I know I don't use this in my text chats. I don't know if you talk like this, but I certainly don't use the word iniquities. But there's a, there's a picture associated to the word iniquity in Hebrew that you just don't get in the English translation. Avon. Avon is the Hebrew word for iniquity. And, and the picture associated with it, it's like that of a boulder sitting on your shoulder. To use the word iniquity, avon, is to paint a picture of that of a boulder sitting on your shoulder the way that guilt sits on us when we have caused harm to someone and rather than confessing it, we explain it away. Rather than facing the parts of us that want to cause harm, rather than facing the parts of us that are harmed and want to harm, We explain it away, and God says that that's like a boulder sitting on your shoulder. There is no no coincidence as to why in a previous psalm, the same author, Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Avon. As if to have a boulder on your shoulders when we choose to deny or disregard the guilt that we carry. It's when we would say or when we would convince ourselves and and we would say things like this. Maybe you're familiar with it. Well, Pastor Rich, you don't know my situation. You don't know that if they didn't do this, I would not have done that. We convince ourselves, we, we rationalize. Have you ever sat on something that you've done? And, 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 as, and, and, and instead of just running to the person and asking for their forgiveness, you, you kind of sit and you're like, man, let me think about this. Because, you know, I don't be wrong like that all the time. So let me just sit on this. You know, I'm from New York. I just, I don't, I don't, I'm not wrong like that, you know. <laughs> and you sit on it. And you start to think about it a little bit. And by the time that you've done thinking about it, they were wrong. And you're like, nah, Pastor Rich, they need to apologize to me. Man, you done done robbed yourself of intimacy. You done robbed yourself of intimacy. You gave yourself, you thought that you gave yourself the space to be wise when you really gave yourself the space from people. When you really gave the, when you really gave yourself the space from intimacy. When you really gave yourself the space from responsibility. When you really gave yourself the space from obedience. Church, it's as if David is saying in this psalm, he's screaming at us. And David is saying, God, if you leave this boulder on my back, it will crush me. God, if you leave this avon on my back, it will crush me. No one will be able to stand in your presence if they could stand at all. 
Church, if there's anything clear about this psalm, if there's anything clear about this psalm, it's this. David is head deep in his despair, and he can't help himself. David is head deep in his despair, and he cannot help himself. There is no getting out of this one on his own. And let me tell you, church, this is big for a person in power. Oh, y'all forgot David was king. Y'all forgot David was a man of power. You see, this is huge. This is a big deal for a man who has power. We just saw his power being used earlier. We just saw how he used his power and his influence to get what he wanted. Bathsheba, if you forgot. You see, David was a man of power. It's perhaps the reason why Ecclesiastes, written, right? Ecclesiastes says, the king's word is supreme. Who can say, what are you doing? You know, I could almost imagine David saying, yo, I want Bathsheba. And his guards and his wise men telling him, uh... She, she's, she's married? <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? I want Bathsheba. She's married. Like, that's what I mean. She's married. <laughs> I can almost imagine the guards like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that you can. But the king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, what are you doing? Who can say no to the king? But you see, what David didn't realize was that he ran face to face with a king who he had the answer to. David ran into a king who could hold his iniquities over him. You see, David ran into a king who was going to hold him accountable for his darkness. He's saying, Dave, you got to face your shadows. Dave, you got to face your guilt. Dave, you got to face your sin. Dave, you got to face your darkness, fam. The depths of despair for David, the weight of his darkness was so heavy and so deep that David needed a power outside of himself and a presence other than his own to comfort him. I hope y'all don't miss the context of this. David is a person of power. People in power often feel themselves. And what he's declaring here is, I, as the king of Israel, as the man in power, need a power outside of myself to rescue me. As a king who feels his own presence, needs a presence outside of my own to comfort me. You see, that's why David, in trust, cries from the depths of his heart to the Lord. Oh, don't miss that. You see, we're not just talking about facing your darkness and facing your guilt and leaving you on your own. No, David is showing us here that there is courage in facing your darkness, in facing your sin, in facing your guilt to the Lord. To the Lord, he says. I'm not bugging, right? That's what it says. To the Lord. That's why in humility, David acknowledges that God is the only one who could remove the avon from his back. David is acknowledging that God is the only one that could remove the avon, the boulder from his back. This is why in verse 4, follow me. This is why in verse 4 he says, but God, let me read verse 3 for context. Lord, if you hold account of our iniquities, who could stand? But... But with you there is 
forgiveness so that you may be revered. In other words, David is saying this, church. God, you are the only one, the only one that can hold our guilt against us, and you don't. <laughs> and you don't. <laughs> oh, church, I pray that you could find some sense of comfort and some self of, uh, some self of freedom here. Yes, God is calling you to face your guilt. Yes, God is calling us to hold ourselves accountable to the darkness, but he comes with forgiveness. Oh, who can stand if the Lord holds our iniquity against us? Oh, but yeah, that's right. God comes with forgiveness. God, you're the only one that can hold sin against us, and you don't. You bring forgiveness instead. Y'all remember John chapter 8, the adulterous woman? Well, if you don't, I'll remind you. John chapter 8, the adulterous woman. Here she is now caught, and in the middle, she stands with a crowd around her, ready to be stoned, because you know the Mosaic law calls for her to be stoned. Funny enough, nobody talking about the dude she was with, but he was there too. All right? Homeboy was there too. They could have had him in the middle as well. But here she is standing in the middle of a crowd, and everyone had their stones in hand, and Jesus is just kind of chilling in the cup, and he's just watching. And then in order to try to trap Jesus, the religious leaders and the elders of the group, ready to stone homegirl, they called out to Jesus, you yeah. And Jesus is standing there, <clears throat> and they ask him the question, uh, we found homegirl, we caught her in adultery. Sad, but, you know, we got to do the deal. That's what the Mosaic Law calls us to. But, but before we stone this woman, uh, you, so-called uh, Messiah, religious leader, what, what would you do? And Jesus, I, I could almost imagine it. He kind of just popped out and probably literally said, I was born for this. <laughs> like, I don't know what y'all thinking. I don't know what y'all trying to do, but I was ready for this. I mean, from my mom's, I mean, I was just ready. I was sitting in eternity waiting like, yo, I can't wait for them to ask me this because I'm ready. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus comes out. Jesus comes out and he hits them. He, he kind of just sits. He kind of kneels. Boom. He does his thing. B-boy stand. Maybe start breakdancing. And he's just like writing. Boom. Probably doing a math equation like, all right, man, what, what am I going to get for dinner later? Probably not even because he knows what he's going to say. And then he goes to them and he hits them. He says, he, with the first, he, he, he who has no sin cast a stone. <laughs> you know what's so crazy? The text says that, that from the oldest to the youngest, they started to put it down. But, but it's interesting to me that the text says youngest. There's something about self-righteousness that's contagious. And as Jesus says, he without sin cast the first stone, and from the oldest to the youngest, they start putting down their instruments of judgment. Because y'all know that's what stones were, right? They started putting down their instruments of judgment, but that's not even the bar. That's not even the bar that got me. Like, that's not part of the mixtape that Jesus was ready to hit me with. He says this. After everyone left, one by one, oldest to youngest, the text says in verse 9, John chapter 8, only he, Jesus, Check, 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 just check this. Only he, only he was left. <laughs> only he was left. 
Only he was left with the woman at the center. <laughs> when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where they at though? <laughs> he looked at her and he said, where they at? He said, where they at? But that's just the rich version. Here's what he really said. He said, where are they? Where are your accusers? <laughs> where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you, he asked. Yo, he's a triple OG, mixtape after mixtape. Jesus is just dropping it. Has no one condemned you? Probably with the biggest smile on his face because he knew the answer. And homegirl just looks around and she says, no one. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Church, please, please hear me. Please hear the good news of Jesus today. The beauty of facing our guilt is that we discover that God is the only one that can accuse us, but instead, he clears us. God is the only one who can throw stones, but instead, he allows himself to be stoned. God is the only one who can hang our guilt, but instead he hangs on a cross for our guilt. Instead of allowing death to swallow us up, he allows death to be his reality. Church, Jesus is good. Jesus gives us the power to look at our darkness and instead of finding fear, we find freedom. I'll let somebody else run from their darkness. I'll let another church run from their guilt. By the power of Jesus, by the blood dripped on my soul, I will look at my darkness, I will face my guilt, and I will find my freedom. The Lord comes with forgiveness. This is why we sing with loud words in that last song, you see the depths. Ooh, y'all heard that, right? That joint hit my spirit hard. That joint hit my spirit hard. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Church, in our humility, in the confession of our sinful behavior, our disposition to bring harm to others, God loves us by coming with forgiveness. And as verse 7 tells us, because I'm in the text, he comes with forgiveness and redemption. God is not just ready to forgive you, he's ready to redeem you. God is not just ready to heal, heal your past, he's ready to empower your present and shape your future. Here's the thing, church. Here's the thing, church. It takes a lot of courage to receive that kind of love. Can I talk for a second? It takes a lot of courage to receive the kind of love God wants to bring us. Because we may say here, it, it, with our hands high and with our voices at the top of our lungs, we may say, God, I love you. 
God, I worship you. God, I receive your love. But you know what receiving his love has to do for you? What it confronts you with? To receive God's love, as the psalm tells us here, is to come face to face with the reason why you need his love. Oh, wait, hold on. If I've got to be loved like this... Uh, by, by me confessing my needs to, to, to need his forgiveness. Is God, if God wants to love me by extending his forgiveness and, and making me whole, then, then Pastor Rich, I got to admit that I'm broken. Pastor Rich, I got to admit I've got darkness. Pastor Rich, I've got to admit I'm in need. Can, can I just have God love me and, and love me the way that I love people? Oof. No, church, listen. <laughs> to receive God's love is to admit our need for forgiveness. It's to admit our need to be put back together. To, to say that I receive God's love is to admit that we have things to be guilty for. <laughs> you see, we talk a lot about how to love. But church, can I be honest? I think church culture and our world today needs to learn how to be loved. We talk a lot about how we can love best, but, but I believe that perhaps we need to first know how to be loved. We need to learn how to receive love. You see, there are two things working against being loved by God this way. Two things that are working against us being loved by God in this way. And I think the verses here show us. The first one is pride. And the second one is toxic shame. Both our pride and our toxic shame are keeping us from being loved by God in the way that he desires to love us. You see, in our pride, we rationalize. In our pride, we rationalize our sin. We explain it away. We justify ourselves. Or in the language of our larger culture, we say we forgive ourselves. Never believing that we should pursue forgiveness from God or from those that we harm. But church, sometimes, as I said earlier, self-forgiveness is an illusion. Self-forgiveness is an illusion excusing your intentions is not the same as forgiveness. You may say to me, well, Pastor Rich, that's not what I meant to say. That's what I meant to do. Okay, I hear you. You still hurt him. <laughs> Pastor Rich, that's not what I meant. That's not the heart behind what I'm saying. You know, we like, to, we like you know, dousing things in church language. God, you know, Pastor Rich, that's not my, that's not my heart. Man, listen, bro. Rich, that's not my intentions. You're, I, okay. But you still had impact. <laughs> you say you may, clear your, you may have cleared in your mind your intentions, but what are we going to do about this impact? What are we going to do about this hurt that you caused? What are we going to do with the wake of destruction you left behind? Oh, that's not what you meant to do? Well, I'm looking at a destruction left behind by your actions and, and, and your words and your deeds. You see, our pride, our pride would lead us to believe that our heart is just fine. You see, pride says, I don't need forgiveness 
Because pride says my heart is just fine. Pride works really hard to maintain the right to need no one. Pride works really hard to maintain the right to need absolutely no one. But perhaps some of us are in here and we're dealing with toxic shame. Maybe it's not pride. Maybe it's toxic shame. It's when we believe that what we've done is unforgivable, that we're too broken, too incompetent. We're too beyond intimacy. Toxic shame makes us believe that we don't deserve forgiveness or relationship. Toxic shame works really hard to earn the right to be intimate with someone. You see, if pride works really hard to maintain the right to need no one, toxic shame works really hard to earn the right to be intimate with somebody. Guilt, church, is a gift because guilt, we're realizing, is relational. It is a matter of intimacy between persons. This is why David in verse 5 says, I wait on the Lord. I love that. Because even when he talks about his desire for forgiveness and redemption, David makes it really clear that his desire is primarily for someone, not something. Because he's convinced that if he gets this someone, that someone will come with forgiveness and with redemption. You see, David's heart is for a person. David's heart is for the Lord. And this is why perhaps Paul in his letters to the Ephesians echoes this. He says, in him, (laughs) in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our iniquities according to the riches of his grace. Church, the promise for us in this psalm is that all of our sins are forgiven. This is why David says at the very end of his psalm, this is the closing call, the final curtain, and his last words are this, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Church, let me make it plain. The degree of forgiveness and freedom you experience experience is connected to our willingness to be truthful, vulnerable, and surrendered. (laughs) You want freedom? You want forgiveness? You want it to the fullest degree possible? Then be the first online to be vulnerable. Be the first online to be truthful. Be the first online... To be surrendered. Church, we won't get the freedom and the forgiveness and the wholeness that our hearts are crying out for until we are willing to be truthful. Until we are willing to be honest. Until we are willing to be vulnerable. Until we are willing to be surrendered to God in the face of our guilt. That's right. Matthew chapter 11, I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives us the invitation that I offer to us today. 
I'm going to read it from the message version just because I think it's poetically written and very compelling. Here's what he says. Are you tired? Church, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And here's the phrase that makes me fall in love with Jesus every time I hear it. Come get away with me and you will recover your life. See, somewhere along the way, we've lost our lives. Somewhere somewhere along the way, our guilt has deceived us to think that our heart is just fine. But Jesus said, if you're tired and worn out and burned out, come get away with me and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Not simply closing your eyes and laying in bed. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay any avon on you. I won't lay a, anything heavy on you. I won't lay a boulder on you or anything ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your kindness. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir this place up with, your Father, with our Father's presence. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prick our hearts in ways that perhaps we have suppressed them. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would prick our hearts in ways that we have neglected to prick them. God, I pray that we would not be so terrified of guilt and lose and rob ourselves of the opportunity of intimacy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would drive us, drive us to the place where we can see ourselves and in so doing discover your power. Jesus, you have made it possible for no darkness to overcome the light. You have made it possible to let no death overcome life. You have made it possible for no enemy, no demon to overtake our souls. God, would you lead us now as we respond to your presence in Jesus' name. And the saints said, amen, amen. We're going to invite our communion servers here to the front. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder of Passive Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you.